0: M1 is the finance super app that puts you in control of your wealth. Invest, borrow, save, and spend your money how you want with sophisticated automation tools to help you reach your financial goals more easily. 2021 is about rebuilding, building health, building wealth, and everything in between. I've been using M1 for years to manage my long-term investment portfolio. M1 lets me follow some of the top-performing hedge funds like Code 2 and balance my pie based on what the pros are doing. It's truly my favorite investing app in the world. Go to m1finance.com slash to get started today and earn $30 to invest after you fund your account. Terms and conditions apply. M1, yours to build. Welcome to TechNori Podcast. I'm Scott Catoon. On this week's show, we catch up with Rivalry CEO and co-founder Stephen Sauls, And I talk a little bit about my experience at the National Card Show, which was here in Chicago. It's in my backyard. For most of you, you flew there. There was, I don't even know the final number, but it's 100,000 people, more than that. I don't know. At, at one point, it's pretty much everyone who wasn't at Lala. That's, that's kind of what it was. Um, we talked to a lot of guests on this show at the event. Uh, Mike Giuseffi and the Sports Card Nonsense group had a couple boosts there. Darren Ravel had a couple boosts there. Darren was flinging some like A tickets and collectibles. I think he said he sold a Hulk Hogan ticket for WrestleMania. Um, he's got everything, so like I don't even know what he looks for anymore. The rest of the experience was sort of eye opening. Um, I I was a busy bee. I got a couple cards. Graded PSA was there for most of you who are into cards. You already know PSA hasn't been taking cards for, I think it's almost a year now. At least it feels like a year. Um, and they had no word as to whether or not they're going to get back to taking cards to grade anytime soon. So hold your breath in that. If you did go to National, they were charging $250 minimum to grade a card, which was basically stating that the cards you're going to get graded need to be worth like $4,000 or more, which isn't obscene when you figure that most of the people who are getting graded for the National event are probably selling premium cards. But if you're a person who gets in a hurry and just didn't want to dick around with it, you paid the 250 and you got your card graded. I had some success in that line. I got my Shohei Otani comeback PSA 10. I had my draft day trio rookie Wade, James, and Mello comeback PSA 9. I was kind of hoping for a 10, but a 9 is still sweet. That card trades at almost 10000 bucks even as a 9. And I'm a big believer in Donovan Mitchell from the jazz. So I had him come back. This came back PSA 10. I'm not selling that. I want to see him become the next Dwayne Wade. Although D Wade is my guy, as you can see the ball and the figurines and all that. I also was shopping. I found some deals and I'll get into why in this whole thing real quick, but I scooped up this Michael Jordan on cart authentics autograph. It's the first I've had of this. I'm a huge MJ fan, obviously from Chicago, but I just never really could like afford it or buy it. And I saw it uh, get traded as part of another deal. And the dealer, in my opinion, just didn't like, he knew what he had, but he didn't really know. And he was just kind of at the end of the show. Like, I don't really want to bring more inventory home with me. So I scooped this up for a pretty sweet deal. I'm hoping to flip that pretty much immediately. Speaking of picking up scoops and flipping immediately, this is how I'm going to segue into this conversation of why so many tech people are starting to get fascinated with cards, uh, we can talk about NFTs and collectibles and retail investors, you know, using Robin hood and other things. And that's part of it. Uh, but there's something else there and I'll get to that. So speaking of that, I'm not a soccer guy. Shout out to my guy, Tony Scheffler, who is, he's the one who mentioned this player, which I now I'm following. Um, he's actually going to come on this show in the very near future. We might spin off some segments talking about cards, but I picked this up. And if you're watching this, he's a stud. I know that. I think the card is an interesting card that has a pretty low pop in 10. It's a hyper prism. And I, there's another prism that's not the hyper. It's not the high-end card. And trades for like 800 bucks, give or take. This thing, I've seen it go from 2,000 to 5,000, like literally all over the place. And I happened to be walking through one of the booths and saw this card floating on the bottom corner of a guy's showcase, Everything else in his showcase were like Mickey Mantle, not the like primo rookie card, but like just a lot of older baseball cards and on-card autos for baseball, no soccer. The only reason I stopped and asked was because I thought this card is out of place and I don't know if he took it in a trade or how it came down, but I firmly believe that this guy didn't know shit about it and didn't have any idea what it looked for what it was priced at. And I think he did a quick look up on eBay, did not type in hyper, I think he thought it was the regular Prism and he priced it at 850. Like at the end of the day, I scooped this shit up because I was like, I am positive. I did a quick, I went to alt, took a picture of the card, came back priced at like 1600. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to scoop this up. And even though I don't anything about soccer, I'm just going to make a roll with it. And I'm on eBay right now and I'm posting this and I legit think I'm going to double my money on this card alone, which goes to my greater point. What I learned talking to a lot of the old dealers at National was that they use sort of the same math that they've always used. And it sort of reminded me, uh, well, it reminded me of two things. It reminded me first of equity crowdfunding in the early days in Republic. And that goes to Alt and all these other platforms that are growing that basically let you commoditize and trade cards without ever having to own and touch them. You can have them in your vault. You could just have them listed. They can list them on their eBay. There's all kinds of tools. But what it does is it makes it so you're not really sitting here paying shipping and taxes and inventory and you're stacking inventory and you need room and all this stuff. It gets rid of that. So you don't have to necessarily make 20% or 30% or 22% or 10%, whatever. You can make 5%, 2%, 7%, 10% on a flip and totally be fine with it. You can see a card and be like, oh, I think that's a good card. I'm going to wait till the end of the All-Star game and just see what happens. And we we did that. Uh, I did that before the NBA Finals. I bought a bunch of Giannis cards earlier in the season, flipped one of them, one I'm holding on to. I bought Chris Paul. I lost on Chris Paul. But had I sold after game two of the NBA Finals, I would have been up nearly 20% on Chris Paul because he was on a torrid run. I bought Aiton and I bought Cam Johnson cards, both rookies that were not too expensive, 150 bucks and $180 respectively. Both are up almost 20%, even though they lost. They were up more than that. And now they're probably wrestling at right 14 to a 10, 12% up because even though they didn't end up winning the finals and they did come down to earth a little bit in the end of the finals, they showed themselves to be legit players and have promise for next year. So they're up. So I'm buying those. You can flip cards in a short hurry if you're not necessarily trying to prop up a brick and mortar store and pay for all this stuff. So why this is important, what I noticed was that the the basic run of play is the dealer comes to you and he says, okay, here's the last three sales of your card, 800, 1,000, and 1,200. If he's moderately fair, he'll say, I'll value your card in the middle, 1,000. And then he'll tell you, and I give you 65 to 75% of retail value. So now he's going to bring it down. Now, if he valued your card at the $1,200, the top number, he's going to say, oh, well, I only pay 65% of retail. If he gives you the low number, he makes you feel good by saying, I give you 75 to 80% of retail. The reality is they're always giving you 70% of the mean. That's what they're giving you almost every time. What that means is they're taking 30% markup, and you have they have to like that's the way that they're making money and they're playing in volume and they're buying all these different cards. The the nostalgia play, the dealers who have a ton of the Michael Jordan 86 Fleers and they're rolling on the Tom Brady and LeBron rookies and all this stuff, and they've got tons of them. They're on a set inventory. Once they sell out of those cards, I think they're fucked because platforms like Alt, and you're seeing already PSA is restocking everything, PE firms are buying all the grading places. Golden Auctions, PWCC. Everyone is investing in tech platforms and obviously the behemoth is eBay. You're seeing two things. You're seeing the card makers get away from just having like six rookie cards that are base and they're making cards like, I think I showed you the first one here. So they're they're taking cards like this show high and they're basically saying, okay, this is a one of 35. We're gonna do a one of one, a one of five, a one of 10, a one of 17, a one of 35, one of 50, one of 100, one of 1000. And it's the same card, and some are autographed and some are not. And there's some debate as to who's controlling the population of the 10s. My, my gut is that PSA is a little bit making sure not too many 10s are flooding the market and there's a little game being played. But beside the point, a lot of these dealers who are resting on just a smash and grab volume, the only way that they can compete is by getting the prices that are preferred buying boxes out of the back of the truck. And if they're not able to do that, then they're playing the same game the rest of us are and the problem is that those of us are using tech platforms and don't necessarily need to mark the card up by 30%. We're literally just being like, okay, I think this card and this card are going to go up two to five, seven, eight I'm going to buy it. I'm not going to pay taxes on the sales tax because I'm going to ship it directly to alt. They're going to vault it immediately list the card. And it's a for sale immediately at whatever price point I want or best offer. And at any given time, I'm flipping these cards without ever worrying. I never even touched up. I never had to worry about it. Alt took care of it. And I paid nominal fees, $5 for some people uh, to vault a card. It might be a, a, a sales fee or shipping, the same stuff you'd pay anyway. And so all of a sudden, I am basically buying retail on Robinhood as opposed to calling a broker and paying trading fees. Do you follow me? It used to be when you traded, you would have to go and call a broker. You'd pay a trade fee for every single thing. And now you don't. You can go on Robinhood and you can just go direct. You can buy ETFs and fractional shares. You're starting to see that come out in cards. You can buy fractional ownership not a big fan of that, but nonetheless, you're basically breaking apart the system. And I think what you're seeing all these tech companies and, and venture bucks seeing is a ridiculous amount of margin that is sucking up all of the money that these dealers are living on. And in reality, if you wanted to be a solopreneur in this and you had a way of getting the best prices on boxes and could pull directly from the pack and the rest of your time, You're hoarding on cards that are like early prospects you think are going to be great, and you get them graded, or you bought them graded if you wanted to pay the premium for it, and you just held them in your vault and you were for sale at all times. You literally could turn a decent interest, a decent return on your money all year long. I basically put $30,000 in cards, and I'm going somewhere between 1% and 300%. 300% like the, one of the reasons this is kind of a challenge is that the show high has now ne- it's my card was the first one PSA graded and they gave it a 10. There's no comps. The price on that card could be 25,000, 35,000. It could be 5,000. So I have to go on an auction. I paid nine fifty for the card before the season. Cause I thought show high was a freak and it turns out he is but he's also had an epic season. So I don't know how much higher his value is. So I want to dump the card now, but I I don't have the clout or power, right? I don't know who to call and do this. So I'm going to auction. I'm going to list it on vault. I'm going to put it up for auction, put it up on eBay, set a price and see what comes back to me. And I'm going to make 3000% on the card, 2000, 1000, somewhere in the thousand. Worst case, probably 500% return on that card. That allows me to fuck up a lot along the way because it's a big number. So then I'm I'm buying on cards like LeBron and legends that aren't going to go down, Jordans that aren't going to go down. At worst I break even, but it didn't cost me anything to break even. The money just sat there. So now think of it like crypto and your Robinhood account. There are some trades you're making along the way, and there's a long play. If I think of it like a startup, I'm buying a prospect, and four or five years later Fernando Tatis becomes a stud, and I sell his card I bought for one thirty for thirteen hundred. And that's a great flip for me, but I never touched it. I didn't have to do anything. And I think that attraction is a combination of new entrants seeing the fun and the coolness and the nostalgia and the feeling of touching these wax cards and these slabs, which look amazing, but also the fun and the money-making of a platform that enables anyone to do trades at any time and never have to deal with the paperwork. And so I think that this market is going to fucking explode because it's a new asset class that previously was not very liquid. If it was liquid, it costs a bunch of money. You know, maybe it's 5%, 3% on eBay. You're probably impatient. You're buying it as a buy it now on eBay. So you're overpaying for the price because there's not a lot of the cards available or listed you're looking for. Then you're paying shipping. Then you're paying sales tax. Then you're holding the card and it just becomes too much of a pain in the ass. It becomes a hobby, which is why it's called the hobby. But I think it's going to get changed. It's going to be called the hobby that makes a shit ton of money because it's no longer just a game of waiting. Now you can literally have instant liquidity. And I am holding a not insignificant amount, 30 plus thousand dollars in just cost basis, like money I've put in. There's probably 50,000 plus dollars sitting in here that have just you know, basically uh, you know, you know, went up. They inflated in price over time for various reasons. And I can sell it when I want to. And I think when you look at the way that everything is going you're going to see a lot of these mom and pop shops that if they're really in it for margin and business and buying volume, I think they're going to start to struggle because why would I go to you when I know I'm going to take a 30% haircut because that's the only way you make money when I can go direct and I can get the full value or like damn near the full value of instant market. As the market matures, you're seeing products like Card Ladder and and there's a handful of other ones that are apps that basically are telling you real-time markets. So if I open up Card Ladder right now on my phone, it's going to tell me The top 10 movers up, the top 10 movers down in the last day. The total market value right now, it's like $4.7 billion. There'll be thousands and thousands and thousands of cards that were added today. You can look up the price and what they were last sold for. And you can see the best 90-day performers. Like these are cards that over the last 90 days went up the most. You don't have to be a genius. If you're a sports fan and you have any inclination of what's going on, you're watching the White Sox and you're like, like I did, you look at Luis Robert, and Eli Jimenez. And you're like, they got hurt. They were studs. The Sox, if they end up getting to the playoffs and winning the world series, which I think that they are, then they'll be back by the time they go to the series and their cards are going to skyrocket. So as soon as they got hurt, I went and bought up all their cards and guess what? I paid $450 for a limited, I think it's an SP one of 25 signed Eli Jimenez card. And it's worth over a thousand dollars right now. And he basically hasn't even suited up again. So as soon as he does, they come back, the Sox get blistering hot in the playoffs and win the World Series. I could see that card trading for $2,000, maybe more. And he might be a card that you hold for even longer. I'm not sure. But the point is, you don't have to be a genius. You just have to kind of know your sports and understand math. And if you can fractional math, the tools are out there. And that's what I'm most excited about. Now, switching gears to the show, this is not uh, a coincidence, obviously. I had the CEO, Steven Sauls, of Rivalry, which is a sports book for esports, And if you listen to my show, you know that I love gambling and I love any action I can get it on. One of the things that I kind of call the Scott Parlay is where I make a bet on the game and a player, but I might also buy their card, which is what happened with the Bucks. I first started off hot on the Suns, bought up a bunch of their cards, as I mentioned. I also placed a bet on them winning in four. Clearly I was wrong. Midway through, I flipped it. I had already picked up a couple of Giannis cards because I thought no matter what, he's going to be awesome. And obviously, you know the rest of the story, the Bucks and six, Giannis MVP, his card is through the roof. That's a Scott parlay. I wanted the card, I wanted the bet, and I wanted the parlay in the game. I think everything that can be bet on will be bet on. And I actually think the biggest growing sport and entertainment sector in the world, and it has been for a decade, but yet it just still seems like it's tiny as far as the market share it has, is Esports. If you have a kid, they're playing games all day. If you're my age, you probably played Shooters, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, uh, World of Warcraft, all of these different games. Now you can bet on it, the rivalry. So you gotta listen to this podcast interview I did with him. It was incredible. We were nerding out on all kinds of old school games and we even touched on NFTs because NFTs, while well, some of them kind of remind me of the ICO craze in 2017 when Bitcoin got hot, This is definitely a market littered with shit, but the foundation is there. The use case is better fit here than ICOs ever were. And if you understand and believe in what I'm telling you about the card market and you already listened to me about the Republic and the equity crowdfunding and you are a Robinhood investor or you use M1, which is what I use, if you use any of these apps to invest, it's a foregone conclusion you're gonna get into NFTs. And NFTs and crypto are more or less born- In gaming, and esports, which is why the logical thought is that the next pillar to fall is betting on esports, which I think is going to be absolutely ginormous and a whole lot of fun. So this is my interview with the CEO and co-founder of Rivalry, Stephen Salls. So I'm excited to talk to you about a lot of things. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot about Rivalry and, and sort of your vision of the company, but in the last... You know, I mean it's been really since COVID, where everyone is just looking for anything to do with their time. Originally it was Robin Hood, and everyone's, you know, your local bartender now is like a leading expert in day trading and options, apparently. Um, and then you know, it reminds me a little bit of like 2016 and 17, like ICOs. As soon as crypto hit, everyone's like, Oh, ICOs, and most of them are just a hot scam. NFTs are a huge thing, all of the big, you know, internet personalities the Gary V's of the world are all over it. I personally run another company that is looking at NFTs as a a very viable uh, tool in music, but not today. Like I'm looking a couple of years from now at this and just trying to build. I'm curious, you know, I know you guys said you you had released, you've dabbled in it at least at Rivalry and you obviously have been involved in this for a while. I'm just curious your take on it and your read on, like when we come back to the world, if ever we do, Mm -hmm. Will all of this stick and will people be continuing their interest in web three and in this digital personalization and investing all the time in anything and everything? Or do you think there's going to be kind of a snapback and people go back to, you know, doing what they did during the day, which means they're not scrolling on Robinhood?
1: (laughs) I think it's going to be a lot like the ICOs where there was the big kind of euphoria and everybody was releasing a token and then it pulled back. People had to get more realistic about it. And then you have people that have been building like legitimate applications on it since like the big pop at the end of 2017. And we saw it in our own industry, like even in esports betting, there were people releasing, you know, ICOs, which then they ran into troubled regulators and it just created a huge mess, but there has been since some legitimate applications. I think with NFTs, to go back, I guess our myself, my co founders, like one of our first businesses was actually like a virtual goods marketplace for the two video games, Dota Two and Counter Strike, which are two of the most popular esports. Yeah. And we ran a third party marketplace where people could buy and sell in game items from those games. It was like it's ba- it was basically it's basically it's a birth of an NFT. Yeah, but it, like, yeah, the, the big difference, right, is you just can't transfer it outside of the game account Steam. So yes. I mean, Steam's very popular, but you know, you can't use those items outside of the games in which they're meant for, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like totally transferable. It's, it's not, you know, as uh, flexible as an NFT is, but it definitely was like the first instance of that occurring. And I think myself and my co-founders, we believed in the value of those goods because we were providing a marketplace for people to buy and sell them and the goods had varying value based on you know the rarity of the item there was even one where a really famous counter-strike player had been using a particular skin when he had a winning shot in a really big winning match and that skin immediately went up in value like it's kind of like nfts in terms on that basis and then even the video game publisher created a system where the professional players for counter-strike would have almost like a sticker, it's called, where it was a digital version of their signature, like an actual autograph. And there was a certain number of stickers and they could apply that sticker to any skin. And then the skin could be resold in the community marketplace or ours to anyone in the world for that game. So the player who took that winning shot with that specific skin, a sticker was of his autograph was applied to that skin. And the skin has kind of a unique number in some way. And that skin sold for like $69,000, like 70 grand. And, and, and it's, it's just a, an aesthetic for a sniper rifle in the game of Counter-Strike that is known to have been used for that kind of winning kill and that winning game, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So we're believers in it. And then when NFTs came around, it was just this it was just a continuation of the same thing to us. And it made total sense to be honest I mean younger generations Gen Z spend a significant amount of time in virtual worlds they don't really distinguish between virtual and physical um, you know people that are older like to say virtual in the real world but to them like digital is real and, it, and it, yeah. it is so like what is the difference you know some people in the physical world like a Prada tie that's hundreds of dollars and some people like uh, you know winner's tie that's 10 bucks and you can't really tell the difference from the outside but the owner likes to know which one they're wearing kind of right so no I mean we think that it makes total sense to us as an asset class. And I think it will continue. I think people are going to build lots of legitimate things with it. We don't, uh, again, I think there's a bit of euphoria now, but I think it'll continue to be a great way for anybody monetizing on the internet as a, another vertical for their business.
0: Yeah, I obviously agree 100%. And, you know, I, I look at this and I, I can't help but think, you know, we talk about ICO and the comparison, the euphoria. It's like a chicken or the egg. I don't know if the opportunists see an opening chance and then they're like the creative juices trying to make money, come up with this ICO, and you're like, I don't really care what happens. Like it's available now, I'm gonna sell it. And if people it's a waste of time, so be it. You know, sorry later. I see the NFTs very similarly in the early days where like some, you know, some of them are gonna stay valuable and probably the early ones, but a lot of the anything that happened after that's kind of worthless. The argument that I I really like. And you kind of made it there, but it's like, when you talk about Gen Z versus like boomers, really you're selling nostalgia and you're selling like a, an identifying mark. So like, I loved Mickey Mantle. I love whatever it is. And so like, naturally the card is trading at $50,000 for a PSA seven or whatever the case may be the same thing for a Gen Z it's the sniper rifles signature mark. And it's you identical. know that every time some dude smokes you from a long way out in a video game and someone puts it on the internet and they see that you had that sniper rifle, clearly you're a gamer, clearly you're a top dude. Cause who else would have that?
1: Yeah. it's And like an example, I gave to someone the other day is like, I saw original unopened, like Mario um, 64 yeah, it's sold for like a or million, or million dollars. And that is a physical good so the boomers will say well that makes total sense because you can you know put it in your room on your bookcase behind you but like another example i gave like i used to be addicted to world of warcraft with my twin brother and you know the the very first big instance or raid was called molten core for anyone that ever played the original world of warcraft and this is like at the peak of world of warcraft mania in the mid-2000s like it was like a cultural phenomenon amongst like that demographic at that time and I remember the first guild which is and the raids are 40 people to kill the first final boss which is named ragnaros in molten core um it when it, it went viral at a time when there was no social media this is like 2005 2006 but yeah. it went viral in a way that it could like forums everything like on battle.net everyone went crazy and, and even youtube videos like i remember seeing and like people were like drooling over it and at the time like it was that equivalent version of viral and i say to people now like if blizzard had I'm not sure if the publishers will ever do nfts but if blizzard had a way to kind of tokenize that moment where the first 40 players that got the first kill on the first server ever globally received like an original token like first ragnaros kill ever uh that is like a historical moment in time similar to the to the mantle card that you mentioned yeah. where those tokens today and i'm of that generation i'm older now i have money i know people including myself who would spend a lot of money uh and would love to own one of those original 40 tokens uh, memorializing the first kill of that boss because it was like a zeitgeist moment like in our childhood. So uh, I don't think there's any difference really between the two, to be honest. I don't either.
0: I don't either. And that's why I think the market is, you know, uh, uh, literally just before we did this pod, I was on a board meeting call and we were talking about NFTs and music and just like how we're going to do things. And one of the things that stood out to me was like, let the craze happen. There's no, there's nothing wrong. Like who cares? More is better. It gives you time to, build technology that's strong to develop all the things you need for the long haul and and play the long game. As you kind of mentioned, people who've been building on the technology for a long time after the ICO craze ended, there's still a handful of people out there utilizing the tools in a very effective manner. And you're just one of them. You just saw the vision longer and you didn't sell short, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And I saw there was an artist, um, I tried to pull it up like I'm probably going to butcher it. I don't know if it's B-L-A-U or 3-L-A-U, but uh, uh, they did a 11.6 million NFT drop for their new album, right? So I think that's it. The thing that excites me more about NFTs, I'd say would be less the artwork, even though I'm sure there's a market for that, but less the artwork, but more like the tokenization of like moments in time that are memorable to a specific community or even a large mainstream community. And tokenizing that in some way uh, is absolutely going to have value in a, let's say a web 3.0 environment. Like people want to say no that question. they oh, like kind of own that piece of history or own that building block, however you want to look at it.
0: I, I, there's no question. And I think, you know, going to the creator, this actually opens up a lot of opportunity from a monetization standpoint that doesn't exist today that like, yeah, I'm signed by a label. Or if you want to go into gaming and esports, it's like, yeah, I'm part of a clan or whatever. And we split money. There are still certain things that you do personally that they don't own. And like, you didn't create it under the Context of a contract or whatever agreement you had. This is something that I did on my own that I'm, I'm free to, and you can create a one of one that was made for you, Stephen. I made this for you. It's not something commercial, but then it becomes commercial, and we both kind of co-own it. And it was all facilitated because of something that took place on the internet, and that opens up this door, I think, for creators to use their skill sets in a way. You know, like I think one of the it's funny. Like we, I promise, we'll get to rivalry, but this is just like one of those things where when you you talk about ICOs. You talk about NFTs. The worst thing that could have happened was when people started talking about it like, "Oh, it's a GIF. It's a GIF for money. It's an it's a it's a meme for sale." And it's like, you really missed it. Like that's not what it is. It's not just like me making money every time someone shares my meme. There's so much more to it, and I, I think people maybe uh, didn't. Yeah, I
1: I think you can break anything down to its bare components and make it seem meaningless. Like, I'll give an example. Um, My dad is really into watches. I'm sorry, dad. I, I don't really care. I'm not really into it. And... You know, for me, a watch is just something that tells time. Like, I don't care. Like, a Rolex watch worth thousands of dollars just because- But the, the gear the, works
0: the, for 48 hours, even though I'm not the, wearing it.
1: The the collectible community of watches, like, I just need a thing that tells me what time of day it is, or I don't even wear a watch at all. Like, like I, I could get a watch for $5. Like, they both serve the same function. Like, what's the difference between a Rolex and a, you know, a box- uh, watch I'm getting from a Lucky Charms box. They both will tell me the time. Like, like so the value to me is the same. But obviously to the watch community, there is like something specific about the materials or I don't fucking know. I mean, there, there, there's yeah. a reason why certain watches are worth more than others. I don't know. No. Like I'm not part of that community. To me, a watch just tells time. So it I would never spend that kind of money on it ever. It's meaningless to me.
0: It's a great analogy. So normally on the pod, I would sit here and I would ask you all kinds of stories about yourself and like, what was your upbringing and how did you go on to, to build rivalry? In this particular case, you just answered all those things by telling me about NFTs and your time at world of Warcraft with your twin brother. Um, Let's, let's talk about what you do, what rivalry does and then let's kind of go backwards in time to figure out like how you kind of decided it was time to build this and it was needed. And then let's get into like where it's going and how you think it impacts kind of the future.
1: Sure. Rivalry, very simply, is a esports focused sports book. We're licensed globally. So we have uh, one of these kind of offshore major licenses in a place called the Isle of Man. Any major sports book like Bet365, BetWay, the household names are typically licensed in either their, their foundation licenses, either the Isle of Man, Malta, or Gibraltar. These are like the blue chip, kind of more gold standard. There's obviously yep. some shadier ones, but those are considered to be like the very kind of blue chip ones. So we're based out of Canada. We have an Isle of Man license. We recently got a license in Australia. So that's a country specific license. And then we're going for more and more country licenses, Ontario, so the province, largest province in Canada is about to license. We're obviously being based there. are gonna be going for that. So yeah, we're a esports focused sports book. As a result of that, the demographic that uses our product is under the age of 30. The average sports better typically is like early to mid thirties and up. So we're at least a one to two generation difference so the product is built very specific to that demographic you know completely different user experience everything built in house the brand is very like meme ship posty kind of in the moment of the internet and that's like the way that we like to do it so We run 20 plus social media properties from a measured monthly engagement perspective. The engagement into rivalry monthly exceeds every other esports betting brand. And I think in fact exceeds every other sports brand other than Barstool, because we're we're probably never going to catch up to that, but yeah, we're a highly engaged brand and that's generated a lot of kind of brand equity for us, helpful for acquisition, all that kind of stuff.
0: What what are typical bets for esports?
1: Same as a sports bet. So the way we've described it always is if you abstract the word esports or gaming from it, it's just sports betting. Like all it is is you're just betting on two teams playing each other in a thing that you like. It's as simple as yeah. that. If if you're watching football, you're betting on two teams playing each other in a thing that you like. If you're watching Counter-Strike a shooting game, you're watching two teams play each other in a thing that you like. So the difference obviously is one is a five versus five shooting game, one is a bunch of guys on a on a football field, but with esports the bet types are the same and even the percentage of bets we see pre-match versus in play is also the same as sports betting so a typical pre-match bet for esports is the same as sports like winner you know which team's going to win a or b yep. it can be you know over under on goals handicaps all that kind of stuff exists in esports and then the in-play betting is specific to the game so the most popular shooting game that's bet on is, is counter-strike or CS:GO. The first round is the pistol round. So the way the game works is you have economy or money. And then as you win more rounds, you get more money to buy more weapons and grenades and things like this that increase your odds of winning, hopefully. But the first round, everyone starts with the same money and they just have pistols. So you can actually bet on like who's going to win the pistol round. And then, you know, as the game progresses, you know, is a specific Player or a specific team, you know, uh, gonna get like a 5 0 as like, none of the players are gonna die, and or whatever it may be. And like, there's lots of these, or like a knife kill, you know, thinking about yeah. all these, like, really specific things.
0: The Yana scores 50 points, same, yeah,
1: thing. same thing, yeah, over unders, so, handicaps, everything.
0: This, like, to me, this is such a no brainer, and like, esports honestly might be a more interesting and more entertaining. Betting experience and even the games—you're just so far removed from games—and I think a lot of like—and obviously we'll get into the handicapping of this, but like handicapping in professional sports, particularly if you want to get to like college football, it's a waste. Like, it's not entertaining. It's chalk most of the time, and there's not a lot of in-game bets that are other than like the typical prop and like Super Bowl props. I guess would be the closest thing um, <clears throat> to like a gaming experience where there's so many different elements. I guess the first question is how do you guys handicap? Like how do you set up like what should be odds on for who should win and, and versus like, I'm assuming at the end of the day, it is no different than players. It's just the way that players are handicapped is just so um, analog versus this being so digital. There's so many different facets to what could change.
1: Yeah. So the point on no brainer, I think I'll dwell on for like two seconds and it ties to the NFT conversation yeah. world at World, world cap, everything. So Anyone that's into NFTs or any of these things should also as well think eSports and let's say eSports betting or anything around it is a no brainer because to us the way that we've always described it is like eSports is just eSports is a sport of the Internet. You know, crypto is the currency of the Internet. NFTs are an asset class of the Internet. Like this is just like this is the Internet sport. It's as simple as that to us. So if you think those things are inevitable, this as well to us is completely inevitable. And it it has been if you look at the growth. So to answer your question on the handicapping though, so like sports betting, all the biggest third-party odds providers are the ones who will trade and handicap and do everything for esports. So unless you're a top 10, 20 sports book and you got a thousand plus employees, which not many do, it is unlikely you're gonna do your odds in-house just because like there's no edge yeah. to it. It's fairly commoditized. I mean, you know, all the odds kind of trend around each other. Like nobody wants to be, you know, too mispriced for the market because then you're gonna have customers that are sensitive to it and you never want to be exposed to that. So the two biggest odds providers in the world are SportRadar and BetGenius. I think one of them went public or both of them are maybe going public in the US. And they do the most odds in trading for traditional sports. And they also do the most for esports. And then the publishers sell data rights the same as like, you know, uh, the NFL and tennis and everyone they sell data rights to odds providers. The large video game publishers sell data rights for their esports to the odds providers. So it like mechanically fundamentally is the same thing. So we don't trade it in house because again, we don't have the resource and there's no real reason for us to do it in house. So, yeah, the same people that handicap tennis are doing esports at the large odds providers. They sell feeds, odds feeds to everybody and that's it.
0: This to me, you said this is a no brainer if you believe in sort of the digital anything. And I mean, honestly, I was talking about this in 2016 or 17, just like sitting there like, why are we not betting on this? Are we, I mean, we are among friends in a small room, but like, why? why I, I almost think that this will be the draw that will get a lot of the people, obviously the kids are always gonna be playing games and they're gonna grow into this, but the call it 35 to, let's just say 50, cause cut it off at people get old and they can't even see. So we'll cut them out, but they're like 35 to 50 range it's the action that draws them into even the sports at this point. It's more, it's more about the risk than it is even watching the baseball game. Like who's going to watch a Braves game on a Tuesday night. Nobody cares, but they bet on it. So they do. This I think is a tool that will enable year round betting, particularly in games and things as you start to get out of just shooters and into like games that people would probably have not been watching esports, but now they look at it as a new avenue. And then of course they'll get hooked. Cause I, I don't know anyone who's watched competitive esports and not gotten hooked. It's just really hard to get them to watch it the first time.
1: Sure. I think so. Yeah. Esports is just a generational inevitability along with a yeah. lot of other trends for bringing, let's say a uh, older demographic into esports betting. There are definitely games that are more uh, friendly to people that have not watched it before. Like the shooting games are definitely just mechanically a lot simpler, more friendly, yeah. slower, slower paced, etc. <laughs> but definitely, I mean, anyone who spent time around somebody under the age of 20, you know, to get them to sit and watch a Braves game on a Tuesday would be almost impossible. I mean, if you maybe put a, like they're going to be on their phone and their computer at the same time, and maybe watching the game with like less than 5% of their attention span, that's like the most they could probably muster. And, and that's the thing, like every successive generation, the attention spans go down. So the good thing about esports, the beauty of esports is the average number of data points on the screen at any given point in time for major esports is like 40 to 50 data points, right? If you look at a traditional sports game, it's like eight, it's like the score is the time, you know, if there's any pounces or anything like that, and maybe one other data point. If you're, you know, 21 years old and you're, you've been interfaced with the internet your entire life, your attention span is not that of a 40 year old and you need like that level of engagement and stimulus. So it's not only like the 40 to 50 data points, like the the health of like each individual player's health kills, utility, like powers, the the time of the game, like the, the maps in the corner, there's like a million things going on at the same time. And then just like the speed and the pace of the game just kind of matches like that expectation. And then, yeah, if you pair that with a a betting product and it's designed in such a way that feels consistent with the thing that they're watching, then it's a highly engaging user experience for sure.
0: So when you look at this and like sort of the future of where everything is going from a consumption standpoint to just like mainstream esports, it's obviously growing. It feels like every day it's like 100% growth, but it has been for almost a decade. And yet there's still this sort of clear disposition, particularly against like, real sports, if you want sure. to call it that. Sure. And I think when you look at, you know, really, to be honest, the, I, I'm rambling here, but there's like an actual point. When you look at like live television, the only reason you pay for cable live television now is, is actual sports. Esports to me is straight digital. And it, it has the position where it literally could wipe out cable and live. Like the element isn't even valuable anymore. And everything is just straight digital. How do you see Rivalry is a part of it, of course, but esports in general, and just sort of the transition from like this sort of like young people thing and they go on this thing called Twitch, uh, to like we're watching it like Olympic esports and like this is like commonplace because I, I don't think it's yeah. I do like it compounds, I don't think it's that far away, particularly yeah, other nations.
1: It's probably a couple of years away. Definitely other nations, South Korea is an example everyone uses. That's what I'm saying, like
0: other nations are all over this already.
1: There were people, you hear stories all the time, like people travel to South Korea in the late 90s, early 2000s, they turn on the TV and on the sports channel would be a game called Starcraft. And there would be like five, 10,000 people in a stadium in the early 2000s, or even I think the late 90s is possible. There's, There's been examples of that. So it's been culturally relevant there for a while. On the differential, especially like in terms of spend and betting handle and all that kind of stuff specific to, to sports betting, it is going to take a while. It's mostly just income levels. So again, like the average sports better on Rivalry is like 2425. The average sports yeah. better on DraftKings or Bet 365 is like 3435. uh um, that's just a it's a huge gap in terms of like how you spend on things like this. The other thing I'd say also is like esports betting and that generation's use of sports betting, at least our view at rivalry and even the way that we went into it and how we approach it, it's more for better or for worse, in a sense, how they look at investing on Robinhood, you know, they are not investing in the same way that their parents did, and I, I I wouldn't say that it's been gamified by Robinhood, but it's definitely almost like an entertainment product as much as it is like an investment. Totally. Yeah. So like like the reason why people wanted to buy GameStop and AMC was not I mean obviously they want to make some money but but a big part of it was like the clout and being part of the community on Reddit and with their diamond buddies hands. and like being everyone on TikTok showing the
0: diamond hands
1: yeah and like showing your portfolio on Robinhood on TikTok I saw a million of those and like just being part of the whole thing and and the other the other example I always use is like Pokemon cards we were talking before right is everyone who anyone who was buying pokemon cards so people have been investing in trading cards for a very very long time why has it become like a ridiculous surge on let's say pokemon cards in the last year or two because a decade ago you couldn't go on instagram live or create a viral youtube video opening tons of packs of pokemon cards that thing didn't exist now spending 100 grand on pokemon cards whether you get it one that's worth the money or not is worth it because you're gonna get a million views on youtube you're gonna be able to generate a huge amount of instagram content there's like a clout and entertainment component uh paired with like the investment in trading cards and i think that's what's happening with like every consumer product so everything is like part of uh generating clout and generating some form of community and that's how people are investing and that's also how people are sports betting so even though like i think that differential on a per user basis will actually continue until even like when the esports better is 30 like i don't think it's going to match what a sports better was when they were 30 if you go yep. back a generation the volume is going to be so significant just because the generational size is huge compared to, let's say, the boomers that are sports betting that it's still on a TAM basis can be worth more than sports betting, but the individual bet sizes and everything's going to be different. It's used much more as like a casual, almost entertainment product rather than, hey, I got my paycheck. Let's put 500 bucks on the box. Like, it's, it's not that mentality. So that... And and I think a lot of consumer products are going that way. Like that's how a lot of people are going to be consuming things. So, so that's, that's how it's going to be in sports betting in terms of like the Olympic representation, there actually already is talks. So I think it's like the, uh, Pan Asian Games or something like this yeah. already has it's a, some qualifier that goes to the Olympics, it already has esports now. So it, it, it's said that I think a few different esports are going to be in the next Olympics, is an expectation. So I can't wait to hear
0: people bitch and moan about that. Like,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, I can wait, but
1: I, I yeah, can't. Pe- people did the same thing when t- you know TV came around after radio, right? So it's an inevitable generational tidal wave that that's coming and has been coming. Well, for hey, a while. when
0: when Bitcoin rebounds to 60,000 a coin again, then your entire TAM. We'll be rich and millionaires again. And exactly. then they'll be betting a lot more money and you'll be you'll be all the richer for it. And you yeah, might get a, into watches, you never know.
1: We've explained this to people. we like, if you had a Venn diagram of people that were like early into crypto or like legitimately use it for anything and people that play video games, people that watch esports, but on esports, NFTs, it would be like just a, everything would be overlapping, right? So it's, it's the same group of people.
0: Yeah. The, you know what? We've been talking about this on the show for, I don't know how long now, it feels like it's been years. It's probably only been since just around the beginning of COVID, but the the conversation around it started off with crypto and then it got its way to NFTs. But like myself used to game all the time. I was the idiot who bought now, of course it's a thing, but like back then you were kind of the dorky kid who like, you know, spiced up his call of duty gear with all kinds of crystal and diamonds. Cause you're a moron. But then also I would go on like mad and I would buy the packs to get the legend. Cause I want to bury Sanders and da 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 da. That was crypto. That, that's all 100. <laughs> that's, what, that's what, what it was
1: ea makes like it's some ridiculous number i, I might be butchering it but i think EA makes like a billion dollars on like fifa packs every year or something it's yeah. some insane number on their PL. yeah so it's the same thing uh nfts and crypto is just a little bit better because it's a little bit more transferable and you can sure. utilize it other ways. yeah so it's, it's actually
0: like decentralized in a way that you can you can take sell and market and use it but yeah. like that was the origin so the idea that younger people yeah. like oh this is gonna work it's like well yeah that like that's such a logical progression. And I think that's one of the parts where like, I look at your company and I'm just like drooling over the potential. Because if you were to take, you know, two years from now, three years from now looking at crypto and sort of tightens up, you look at the user who's been in this space forever. It is such a logical progression that I could buy different packs and tools and gear and swag, whatever you want to call it in my in-game experience and I could wager on it, that I could take that money. I could reverse and buy more swag, play, take the money, sell it out, buy it into Bitcoin, trade Bitcoin for some other goofy shit, go on Carta and buy company stock. You know, like your your whole economy is just like all driving out of this one thing. It, to, I, maybe I'm nuts, but it, it is so logical to me.
1: Yeah, and you can also make the core product free or close to free because yeah. you can monetize it in so many other ways, which I think is great for musicians, so uh, as, as an example, because I know, I know music that came up, I, I saw like a thread, I think it was Chris and I think he's Andreessen and Horowitz guy or something, but he, yep. he also compared how the video game publishers figured this out early and talking about NFTs, this exact same relationship. And he's like, they realized if they make the game free, they can actually make more money by monetizing like digital goods and
0: more people are and using it,
1: like microtransactions within the game, rather than gating the game with a $40 fee and then not charging for anything within it. So, and now this is just being transferred to other industries. So music industry is going to start doing the same thing and everyone else is going to start doing the same thing. Right.
0: So smart. So smart. Yeah. What do you guys feel like you have to, like you're riding on this kind of rodeo, you've got to hold on tight. What are the, the, like the, the, the first sharp turn that's coming that you've got to be ready to capitalize on
1: Oh, ready to capitalize Many sharp on. turns yeah.
0: <laughs> or so, just hold on you know, whatever.
1: Yeah. It, it's definitely a bit of hold on. I mean, for us specifically, it's just like operational scale. So I mean, our business has been growing at like almost 18-ish, 20% month over month since August of 2018 on average. Uh, Every month is a new record month for us. Last month we were up 37%. This month we're up tracking for up another 20%. So it's just like, being able to just operationally scale and you know, just a lot of like really nuanced problems within the company itself. But then I, I'd say, like, the bigger challenge, I thought that's what you meant by sharp turns. Yeah. But the bigger challenge, and I know Brian Armstrong and the crypto guys are dealing with this because we're seeing like Binance, everyone's getting you know sued by different you know yeah. countries because they need to be regulated. This is kind of like the nuance we actually deal with as well. And the analogy I've drawn is the winklevoss twins and brian armstrong their whole thing is like no let's work with regulators like if you think about it from like a purist perspective why would a crypto exchange a product like that fully decentralized etc work with regulators almost and become like a regulated bank and then list yeah. on a u.s public stock exchange which comes with more regulation it's trying to be like a large crypto company but like i'm more of a believer honestly in that than like complete lawless decentralization like yeah. I, I i'm a little bit more in that camp because there is a need there is Anyone who's ever been scammed once, which happens in these more decentralized things, knows there is some need for Uh, some consumer protection like uh, just just a tiny bit it always is yeah yeah so and in gambling it's the same thing like the gam the way that people get scammed in gambling with these you know offshore completely like decentralized even crypto betting sites is you don't have like the most basic thing in the world that every regulator puts in place for sports betting is player funds need to be protected it's super simple like because what ends up happening with with these other guys is they use player funds for marketing spend and for operating spend like the most basic thing is just put it in a ring fence account watched by somebody else that just make sure that if you go buy all the players get their balances back. It's like extremely simple. So it, this is actually like the more challenging thing is that we're living in this world where our user who's lived their entire life uh, on, uh, as a pseudonym in a, in a gamer tag. with their coming to us. And, and they're coming to our sign. we're like, we kind of need your passport, because we got to make sure you are who you say you are, because we've got like AML rules and all this kind of stuff there. You know, it's it's a little weird. And I'm sure in Coinbase and, and these more regulated crypto products, it's also similar. It's like, wait, why am I using crypto? But you're asking me for like KYC. It's kind of, what's the point? So... They're trying to find that balance. And we're also trying to find that balance where we're trying to expand rapidly. We're getting new licenses, as I mentioned. And every time we go to a regulator, we look and feel very, very, very different from anything they've ever seen. Our user demographic is very different from what they've seen. And a lot of the regulation was not built to spec for us. So that's the big challenge is like, we want to be those guys that are more like, the coin bases of the world than the completely like lawless unregulated versions of it so that is the other thing that we're constantly having a dialogue on and and and, and we hope the good guys win because i i think there's we saw this in in skins marketplaces and the stuff we used to do and, and there was skins betting which was completely illegal sports betting like the nefarious kind of actors and things that come out of uh, a completely it's gonna happen is, there's is, is, no is, way to is, stop is it. very very it, no it's it's gonna happen but it's 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 like the crime rate there's always gonna be crime you just want to reduce the incidence and the rate of crime, right? Yep. Um, like places where there's security economically do better than places where there is not. So, uh, and I think uh, businesses also thrive in, a, in, a, in the same environment.
0: I, I totally agree with you. I, you know, I have a lot of respect for even people like CZ from Binance. Like I, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I get it. I get it. But like, you know, the
1: i think i think he's an, like i think him specifically it's I, I suspect he will he's just he's so out there like i i think binance will find some middle ground for sure yeah, yeah it's too so, big
0: to not it's it's yeah. too big to not and like but i look at him and it's like you know the cl- and i know he is definitely like on this is another planet over here there is like the cloud on twitter for being like f you as you get all these regulatory things and you post it it's like I'm sorry if you want to look at Brian as an example. And of course, Brian's not perfect. No company, no CEO is perfect. No, no. But you look at like Coinbase and you're like, you got too big. You get to a point where like if your backers who put money to get you to this point, if they're, they are still in it for business, if they are going to get their money out and there's going to be an liquidity event that allows it to happen, it's going to have to be listed here. So if, you, if you're going to be listed here, you have to do the things that the other guys did, whether you call yep. it fiat crime or not. You know, and I also think I really like your reply to the question, by the way. Um, and, I, and I think of, you know, early conversations I had with even um, Basecamp, Jason Freed, um, yeah. talking to Jason Fried about just the, the difference in the world of regula- regulations and, and technology. And at the time we were talking about data, it will get there. The regulators are always 10 or 15 years behind. There are always billionaire barons who make a shit ton of money because there's no regulation and they just like fly through. And that just happens, but it will have to get there. And it will, it's just, you'd rather be on the side of it. That's like, protecting your customers but also at the same time like not being stupid and knowing that like you're gonna have to stand in front of the jury if you will
1: yeah like an example i use because a lot of these guys also are, are elon files and, and, yeah. and a lot of us are but but elon even, even
0: maximus I,
1: even 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 people that even guys like that who, who kind of seem to hate the government yeah. and regulation even he you know, pushes for things like AI. You know, he thinks there should be regulation because he knows there needs to be protections and he controls knows what on on certain things. And and then and like let's say Tesla as well. Like, you know, I'm sure he's pissed every country he goes into for Tesla. He's got to deal with like the emission regulators and the, the EV regulators and whoever in each each country he goes into. But like, it, there's reasons for that because again, like, and and he is not You know, I'm sure he bitches and moans internally. But like, you got to meet emission standards. I know there's not because it's an EV, but like, you, yeah. you got to you got to meet the standards of like the local regulation. But there still is, of course, like, for him in like
0: battery and like he's got to be able to make it in an energy efficient way. And there still whatever. needs to be like
1: some controls, some consumer protections, like, and, and, and if you work with that, then you can get, Greater distribution and, and more mass appeal for your product. If if he went against that, it was always just kind of f you to those guys. Then, then the business wouldn't even exist, right? Like you,
0: he's Nick. He's Nikola. <laughs> he's yeah, Tesla's you have to just find Nikola. that middle
1: ground. Like you like you have to find that middle ground. That's all. Like you just have to uh, find the middle
0: ground. You made a great point here, but I actually think this even like tells it further as you look at like what Elon was doing with Dogecoin and like how he's pumping dump Doge and then he's over to <laughs> Bitcoin and this. That. I actually think that's a lot. I read a lot into it.
1: He's only pumped actually, no dump, right? That's what that's that's what he said the other day. Yeah, he's except for his <laughs>
0: ex wives. Um, I, I look at what he's doing and I go, this is a guy who's absolutely brilliant. He knows he can make money and do this left and right because it's not really regulated and he can say whatever he wants. And he's just kind of playing, he's laughing at you. He's laughing. Yeah. That's how I viewed it.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, but again, at the at the same time, like a guy like the car and rocket industry have got to be some yeah. of the most regulated industries on, on, on the planet. But like he, he went yeah.
0: exactly how far he knew yeah. he could, he was basically pointing at you going like, hey, I'm exploiting the loophole that's going to put you yeah, guys- yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. That's fine. I, I actually think that's yeah. probably a, is a benefit for everyone that he did that because yeah,
1: like, I, I don't think that's the, the, the worst thing in the world. And I, I know it's an extreme example, but again, like the rocket industry should have regulation, yeah. like you should be able to launch it wherever you want at will, you should be able to do it in a residential neighborhood or, or near one, like, there are reasons like, and again, I know it's super extreme, but, but it's, it's the case for regulation when done right, because there are certain products and certain industries Drones. and things that just drones needs to is have like a little bit of example. Yeah. yeah it's another great can't example. You can't be flying
0: drones, like flying by my window looking. I don't know what the fuck's on your drone. Like, you know, it. this is all stuff that we've never dealt with in the government. I mean, yeah. it was two years ago that we were sitting in a courtroom watching old white dudes ask Mark Zuckerberg, how they made money like yeah. that just happened. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there, there should be an age limit on politicians. I think it's <laughs> just seriously. They're, 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 that's there podcast
0: part two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> part so, two deconstruct the government.
1: I hope. The guys that are trying to find the middle ground are, are the winners but but it's i think it's i think for
0: the foreseeable future it's inevitable there's going to be lawlessness there's going to be all kinds of problems mm-hmm. the same thing for for rivalry same thing for sports betting yep. the, you know there's they're targeting young people with like hey buy extra boost like in in just fan duel like i get offers for shit that like honestly if i was a degenerate which i kind of am but i have some control <laughs> of my vice like yep. i would be susceptible it's no different than selling cigarettes to kids through camel like i 100%. this stuff will, will 100%. happen. So I, I think you're on the right side of things, taking this approach. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the, once you start taking institutional money and you're getting involved in that, like the only way for them to get out is the liquidity event. And then the only way for that to happen is you to be able to stand up in front of the FCC. And
1: the other side of it is, is if you, if, if somehow you magically bootstrapped a business that became worth billions of dollars, which has definitely yeah. happened, then the, like, like, I think maybe finance was like that. I'm not really sure how, how it was financed, but then if, there is a limit on scale and a number of employees, where then like you're starting to put staff at risk because uh, you you haven't you know properly incorporated or instituted or or nothing. So like so even if you don't take that outside money that isn't looking for liquidity, there's still going to be some cap on your upside because the business gets so big that you know triggering like employment laws in certain places. Like who knows? Like there's just you're going to run into something else at some point in time. Even and the if, irony
0: like, is that that's what they're fighting against, right? Yeah. The irony is that they don't they don't think they should get a cap for anything. Yeah. Oh, this is fascinating stuff. I literally think we could do a podcast. You could just be on every week if you have nothing to do, you know, uh, just in case you're bored. But I <laughs> yeah, appreciate that. I, uh, I hope people go check out Rivalry. I think it's a ton of fun. I love what you're doing. Your backstory is, is awesome. And I, I think we're going to see a lot more founders that are coming up this way. And they're like using different products and different technologies in a way that you were using it 15 years ago. In a way that people are now using it. That's just you know, you know, it's obvious to me that you would see the hole and build for it, and you've clearly done that.
1: Yeah, there's going to be a huge opportunity to rebuild a ton of, let's say, like archaic consumer experiences in what are considered mature industries for uh, the next generation. So I guess of, yeah, like a, a final kind of parting example about the inevitability of all of this is. I had previously done some lectures at a large university in, in Canada, and, and I used some of the old decks I always use to educate capital markets, Wall Street, et cetera. And I was explaining, and I, I should have changed it because I was presenting to like 19-year-olds or 18-year-olds. And I was explaining why like digital goods have value because I was talking about the, the in-game items marketplace and all this kind of stuff. And nobody blinked or questioned it, and I kind of breezed through it because it was just, it's it, for that demographic generation it's just completely assumed because it's just like a fact of life for them and i spend sometimes more than 50 percent of the time of any presentation to people on let's say the wall street or canada's version which is called bay street explaining like why would somebody bet on esports what are esports and like why does virtual goods have value and yeah i mean the (laughs) the the people that represent almost like 40 percent of the world's population so people under the age of 30 they they don't they look at me and think i'm an idiot for even having to explain this to them so so i think that that is like the inevitability of all this. And as those people start to get spending power, they're like 20, 25% of the workforce. Now it's going to be 30% then 40%, 50%. No one's going to even look back on this as something that really should have been debated. And I think that's the opportunity for anyone building a business today in these spaces, obviously.
0: I think that's going to be the headline for this podcast. If you had to listen to this entire show to understand it, you're an idiot. <laughs>
1: exactly. Perfect. That's the sound So point.
0: open it up so that I get the play and then do whatever the fuck you want with the rest of the 40 minutes.
1: Yeah, Perfect,
0: (laughs) Steven, thank you so much for taking the time. Where do people go to check out Rivalry?
1: Yeah, it's www.rivalry.com. That's it.
0: Very cool. Awesome. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Appreciate it.
0: If you're interested in self-directed investing from startups to crypto and public markets, my Substack is a great way to learn how professional investors screen, review, and pull the trigger on deals. Join the largest community of micro-investors and startup founders on Substack by going to katoon.com.